baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. I'm Heather Vale, and you're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. Today, I'm speaking with Chelsea Moore, Director of Wealth Management Solutions at Country Financial. She's also a certified financial planner and chartered financial analyst. Many Americans are dipping into their savings this time of year to pay for gifts, travel, and entertaining guests, and high inflation ratings aren't helping matters. So how can we make better financial goals for the new year? Chelsea has some tips to share with us. Chelsea, thank you so much for being here today. Good morning, Heather. Thanks for having me. So what have you discovered about how Americans feel about their financial security and managing their financial goals? Americans are feeling pretty good about their financial security. According to our most recent country financial security index, about 80% of Americans say that they feel comfortable paying their debts. Over half say that they've been able to take it one step further and contribute extra savings to savings accounts and investment accounts. This has led to the majority of Americans, 60%, feeling pretty good about their financial security. But we know that inflation is certainly weighing down on those confident levels, especially now in the holiday season when we are spending more frequently and often higher purchases as well. But looking back over the last year, we have seen wage increases and we're also still sitting at relatively low unemployment levels. Yeah, that's some good news. So how should we prioritize financial goals for the new year? When it comes to prioritizing goals, we suggest that you first write them down and ensure that you're in alignment with your household. So that whether it's talking to your spouse or your children and making sure that you are all on the same page about what the financial goals for your family are. From there, taking those goals and breaking them down into smaller subset, more micro goals that are easier to accomplish and helps you prioritize them a little bit easier as well. So some of those goals that we would suggest you have would be having an emergency fund, protecting your assets with proper insurance coverage, managing your debt, and utilizing a financial advisor that you know and trust. Okay, and then what are the biggest mistakes that you see people make with their money? One common mistake that we see especially now in the holiday season, is that mindless spending trap. So this means spending money that you just haven't budgeted for. So whether it's those pesky social media ads that always seem to know what we want, <laughs> um, or just picking up a few extra things at the checkout lane that you haven't budgeted for. Another common mistake that we see is Americans tend to just feel uncomfortable about talking about their finances with their family. Now, we certainly don't mean you you need to tell your great aunt over Christmas dinner how much is in your checking account, yeah. but we're talking about have a conversation about, you know, where is your will? Where is your life insurance paperwork? What financial institutions are you utilizing? In our line of business, unfortunately, we work with clients that have those unexpected losses. And if they aren't properly prepared to even know which financial institutions to call, it can make it really tough on the family. Yeah. Okay. Now, you mentioned that one of the places where you recommend prioritizing a financial goal is having a financial advisor. 
But sometimes it's a bit of a catch-22 because those who might need a financial advisor the most are least able to pay for them. It seems like it's you know one of those luxury things that when you have a lot of money, then you can afford a financial advisor. How much does it actually cost? Yeah, interesting enough, according to our survey, we, we see about 75% of Americans not use a financial advisor. And the top reason is because they feel like they don't have enough money. But when it comes to the fees that financial advisors charge can be vastly different from one advisor to the other. So we suggest looking for an advisor that you know and trust and you ask, start asking those questions. How much do you charge? When do you charge? And why do you charge those fees? Uh, additionally, the services that they provide can be wide ranging as well. So making sure that you're finding someone that aligns with the services that you need whether that's budgeting, retirement planning, estate planning, or small business planning. I mean, you brought up a good point there that a lot of people feel like, well, if I don't have enough money to manage, why do I need an advisor to tell me what to do with my money? So for the average American, what are the benefits of working with a financial advisor if you feel like you don't have enough finances to even talk about? Americans tend to feel pretty comfortable managing those short-term tangible things like a budget, where Americans feel like they want help is those longer term goals like retirement. According to our survey, those that have a financial advisor report that they are happier and more confident in those long term goals. And the reason for that is they value that expert advice. They value the financial protection that they're getting for their family and that dedicated person to ask questions to. Okay, so is that a strategy you would advise, like manage the day-to-day on our own, but use a financial advisor for the bigger, longer-term goals? I think that's a good rule of thumb, but every person's situation is unique and your financial needs are unique. So if you've got something unique about your financial situation, if you own a small business, which is really common these days, uh, we would suggest trying to find a financial advisor that meets the needs that you have. Okay. So where can listeners go to find out more about this topic, financial advisors, financial goals for the new year, or about country financial in general? We've got some great resources at www.countryfinancial.com. Okay, awesome. So countryfinancial.com is the website to go to, countryfinancial.com. And Chelsea, I want to thank you for being here. You've given us some great tips for strategizing financial goals for the new year, as well as on an ongoing basis. I mean, we like to talk about it for the new year because that's when people like to set goals and resolutions, but these are tips that they can use all the time. So I want to thank you for being here, sharing your expertise and your time with us. Thank you so much. When it comes to making plans, you are the best. What about those round trips that you plan in advance, which are perfect on your way there and perfect on your way back? Or those meetings with friends for which you make a group chat three months before so that nobody or anything is missing? Or your daughter's first birthday party? You planned it with such dedication that instead of the first, it felt like our quince's. The same way you plan each detail for those moments. Start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster. Sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. Prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan. Protecting your family is the best plan you can make. 
Get started at ready.gov slash plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Hey, Dad. Your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad. Your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey. Why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. This is the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show, and I'm Heather Vale. Today, I'm speaking with Brian Sherman, a wealth management lending executive for Bank of America Specialty Lending. Brian has more than 25 years of experience in consumer and high net worth lending. Bank of America's latest homebuyer insights report uncovered why older generations are staying in their homes through retirement and how this affects housing supply. Brian, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Heather. Thanks for having me. So what did your latest Homebuyer Insights report reveal about the housing shortage in the U.S.? There's 85 million owner-occupied homes in the United States. 70% of them are owned by Gen X and baby boomers. And what our survey told us is that 70% of them plan to retire in the homes they already live in. Okay. And was there any indication as to why they're planning to stay in their homes during retirement? Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, they share with us that they've built memories, they've raised families. Obviously, older homeowners are going to be less inclined to sell as, you know, interest rates are up, rent prices are up. 78% of them told us that they really love their current home. Many of them have already put too much work into that home and it, it fits the lifestyle that they want and need as they enter retirement. Yeah. And, you know, that makes a lot of sense. I can relate to that. What does that mean to the next generation who's trying to get into homeownership? Yeah, absolutely. Well, obviously, supply and demand. Demand is high. Supply is low since we have not only Gen Xs and boomers choosing to stay in their house, but we have a decade of insufficient home building and new house starts. So, uh, you know, what, what the survey actually showed us is that Gen Xs and baby boomers intend to help the next generation, and they're going to do it a couple of ways that one is obviously help them financially through either cash or passing their current home down to them. 12% actually told us that they're going to offer to live together with their family in, in really a multi-generational spaces. Okay. And what does that look like if you have a single family home? Are they planning to do renovations mm-hmm. and divide it off or just, you know, everyone kind of share the home together? Yeah, so they didn't go into into full specifics in our survey. However, what we do know is post the pandemic and throughout the pandemic, uh, homeowners have seen $5 trillion in equity earned within their homes. So many of them likely will take equity out of their home to do any sort of remodeling or renovations to make it more suitable for multi-generational spaces. Nice. Okay. 
So for the millennials and the Gen Z who don't have someone in the Gen X or baby boomer generation who is going to hand down a home to them, they're starting from scratch and they want to become a homeowner. What advice do you have for first time home buyers who are hoping to purchase a place of their own? Yeah, well, I think that uh, a lot of people often ask the question is when is the right time to buy? And we typically tell people not to time the market. The right time is really when the individual or family is emotionally and financially ready to do it. So in order to be able to prepare themselves, we would recommend that they connect themselves with a local reputable real estate professional and connect themselves with a lender. There's a lot of information in the home buying process that can be daunting at times. And so there are lots of great resources out in the local community, home buyer education courses. We have on our website, bankofamerica.com, an online education series that is a five-step process to help prepare them for home ownership. Uh, I think that it's natural for people to think that with rising interest rates, high home prices and low inventories that homeownership may seem like it's impossible, but it's unique for each individual. So I'd encourage them to reach out to that local real estate professional, reach out to a local lender. Quite often, the decision-making process that I hear people go through is deciding whether, okay, look, I'm paying X amount towards rent and it's not building equity Mm -hmm. for me. Or I could pay Y amount towards mortgage and I would be building equity. What is the tipping point Mm -hmm. where they should decide that, you know, I can afford the payments. It's time to stop paying rent. Even if the mortgage costs a little more, it's time now to buy. It's going to be a unique situation for each individual, right? Obviously, throughout the home buying process, there are, you know, down payment requirements and closing cost requirements. So meeting with that lending professional to to uncover what it's exactly going to take in order to move from being a renter to a homeowner is really, really important. I like to say that every single purchase is about is like a snowflake, right? Each one is very unique. And that's why working with a professional to focus on your unique situation is really important. Yeah. Absolutely. So you mentioned bankofamerica.com has the education series. Can you give a bit of a rundown on what people can learn there if they go check it out? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a five-part online series that provides them information on preparation for purchase. And it includes things like how to get a free copy of your credit report so that there's no surprises when you meet with the lender and they pull your credit. It teaches them how to make a budget and it prepares them for things that they may or may not be thinking about down payment, closing costs, and things like uh, having a little bit of a reserve for repairs, right? Uh, One of the biggest changes from being a renter to a homeowner is when that air conditioning goes out, you know, you're responsible for it. So it's really an educational uh, preparation course to teach them how home buying works and how they can be set up for financial success. Yeah. Awesome advice there. Okay. So once again, bankofamerica.com is the website to go to bankofamerica.com. And there's a five-part online educational series for homeowners, new home buyers. So take part in that. You can learn all the ins and outs of getting into a home for the first time. Once again, bankofamerica.com. And Brian, I want to thank you so much for being here, sharing your expertise, giving some great tips to the listeners and providing the resources. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me, Heather. I was in the hospital with my son for 18 months. When he got injured, I wasn't prepared, but I knew I had to be strong. When I was told about John's injury, I was in complete shock. I just remember rushing into his room and giving him a big hug and letting him know I was there. 
These veterans and families are just a few of the heroes we serve at Homes for Our Troops. For thousands of severely injured veterans, everyday life is filled with barriers. It was really the, the little things throughout the house. Counters that you can't roll up to. I had to drag my wheelchair down steps. I want to help, but he is so determined. At Homes for Our Troops, we build specially adapted custom homes with features like wheelchair access, roll-in showers, and automatic door openers that allow them to function independently and focus on their recovery and family. This house is freedom. It's hope. It's a new beginning. This house has given me my family back. To learn more, visit hfotusa.org. Welcome to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. I'm Heather Vale, and joining me today is Bob Boister, President and CEO of the Fetzer Institute. Bob has served as president of the Fetzer Institute since 2013, and before that spent his career working with nonprofit organizations on strategy development, advocacy, program development, governance, and legal compliance. He also practiced law in Washington, D.C., representing a broad range of foundations and public charities. Bob, thank you so much for being here today. Well, thanks for having me. So what exactly is the Fetzer Institute and when was it founded? We were founded in the 1980s by John Fetzer, and I can tell you a little bit about John. Uh, but um, we have been in active operation since 1989. We are based in Kalamazoo, Michigan. The IRS would describe us as a private foundation. We have a significant endowment. But I describe us as a uh, diverse, inclusive, spiritually grounded community of love and hope. So we're very different from your typical foundation. First and foremost, we think of ourselves as committed to the broad spiritual mission of trying to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. And what was John's mission when he first founded it in the 1980s? John had a global, a long-term global vision. Uh, he told us to think not in terms of decades, but in terms of centuries. And in broad strokes, I would say uh, his hope was that the Institute could play our part in helping the human family take the next big step in our spiritual journey. John uh, was very committed to trying to bring back into balance the the scientific, rational way of understanding reality and the spiritual way of understanding reality. He felt like that had gotten out of balance. And if we want to put it into a really big history frame, we'd say that the Enlightenment experiment was all about, uh, has been all about going all in on science and reason to try to understand the external world, but really took a huge step back from the spiritual way of engaging reality has caused uh, many to lose confidence in their uh, spiritual intuitions about uh, the purpose of life, the sacredness of life, uh, the values that ought to guide our life, and that the Enlightenment uh, produced a lot of benefits, but it's also come at the cost of squeezing out that sense of sacred connection and deep meaning and hope. And we would connect that very directly to what we're experiencing in our country today, in our world today, of the, the, the breakdown of our sense of, of shared purpose and connection uh, and our ability to find the, the spiritual common ground to build a world in which everybody can flourish. 
Okay, so you're talking a lot about spirituality, which a lot of listeners would equate with religion. And certainly there's religious divide in this country, but there's also political divide. Why do you think that is? Well, maybe the best way to give you my perspective on that is to relate it to my uh, personal experience. You mentioned my time in Washington. I got very interested in the whole nonprofit world, some would say civil society, when I was in law school uh, back in the 1970s, as the place where we come together as private citizens to work for the greater good. And I decided that's where I wanted to spend my career, and I have. And as you said, I went to Washington, and a big part of my work uh, has been helping with nonprofit advocacy campaigns uh, across a whole range of issues. Back in the 80s and 90s, I set up a public policy office for the National YMCA, and we worked on issues related to the flourishing of children and families. But I've also worked on uh, health issues and environmental issues. And the reason I'm raising this or bringing this into this conversation about spirituality is I lived through the decades in which our ability as a nation to come together and do big things slowly slipped away as we became more and more divided. And I watched both sides get better and better at mobilizing their supporters by demonizing the folks on the other side. So we moved from disagreement to, uh, I would say, demonization to dehumanization. Uh, and now to a point where if you look at the public opinion polls, on both sides, there's this sense that the other side is not just wrong, but a threat to the survival uh, and, and welfare of the country. And so there's this mindset that we have to, to beat the other side into submission. And the result, I, I would suggest, is that we're caught in uh, this partisan death spiral where each election cycle becomes more divisive and toxic uh, than the last. And I think many people, uh, and you can see this in the press every day, uh, are increasingly worried that uh, we may not have a lot of these election cycles left in us. Now, I've got uh, five uh, precious little uh, grandchildren who, God willing, will be alive uh, toward the end of this century. And, and I uh, fear that if we stay on our present course, they're not going to enjoy anything that looks like a flourishing free society. So I was just so grateful 10 years ago to have the opportunity to move from my Washington advocacy world into this deeper mission uh, at Fetzer, because I think the, the only solution to this breaking apart of our nation and, and our world is at a level much deeper than politics. Yeah. Now, when we're talking about divide between two different factors, four different factors, what have you, whether we're talking politics, whether we're talking religion, whether we're talking gender or race, you know, any number of things, it seems like sometimes it's a matter of people wanting to feel like they're part of a tribe, like they belong somewhere, and then it just kind of snowballs from there to the point where it's not just I belong somewhere, but it's I'm against you because you don't belong here. How does that happen? Well, 
I think we're probably hardwired for that tribal instinct as a matter of survival over the ages that we need a group to help us survive in a, in a tough world. And the way we evolved, uh, those groups were literally tribes uh, that uh, had to defend themselves against other tribes. And uh, uh, there was a lot of solidarity and co cooperation within the tribe, but this deep-seated fear and, and uh, conflict outside the tribe. And I think we've gotten to a point in our human journey where that just doesn't work anymore. We've gotten so powerful and we can use that power for good or ill. But if we're in this tribal mindset, we're going to use it as, as we see to try to dominate folks outside our tribe with the hope that that translates into a better life for those in our tribe. But I think we can see all around us that's not working. So to continue the tribal metaphor, I'd say we have to realize that we're all members of the same tribe, the same human family, and that we have to find our sense of belonging in that bigger vision of who we are. And it's interesting, that, and I think more than interesting, that if we look at all of the great spiritual traditions that the human family has, has lived in over the centuries, they all converge at a deep level on that message about the, the sacred dignity of every human being and also the sacredness of the natural world. And they all call us to engage with each other based on love. So I, I think we just have to, to recognize that if we retreat further and further into our tribal identities, we face a pretty grim future, but it doesn't have to be a grim future because as human beings, we make a choice to stay in that narrow tribal identity or to profoundly open our hearts to each other, which we see as a spiritual challenge. When you talk about spirituality, spiritual challenge coming together on a spiritual level, what is the difference between spirituality and religion? Great question. And I'll, I'll say my simple working definition of the spiritual dimension of our lives is that that's the place where we wrestle with the deepest questions of the human condition. Why are we here? Is there any meaning and purpose to this, uh, uh, this whole show at all? Are there objective values that are just part of the nature of reality that ought to guide our, uh, our existence? Uh, what's a good life look like? What's human flourishing look like? And if you take that working definition of, of, of the spiritual dimension of our life, uh, we're all spiritual because nobody gets a free pass on those questions. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the heart of, of each of the great religious traditions, that's where they start. And one way I, we talk about it is that you know, we all live in the face of the same deep mystery of existence, and we all put down our bets on, on the nature of that mystery. Is it on our side? Does it care or not? And the, I think the striking thing about all of the traditions is that they've probed the mystery literally for centuries, if not millennia, uh, and none of them have come back and said, it's meaningless. 
It's value-free. There's no deep hope. So just get on with your life. Instead, they've all come back and said it's a sacred mystery that's in some deep ineffable sense on our side and that holds us in love and calls us to love. So that to me is the heart of the spiritual experience of you know, millions and millions of individuals over time and in our time. And I would say a large portion of the human family has engaged those spiritual questions in the context of one of our religious traditions. And many have found life-affirming connection with the divine uh, and with other people in, in that religiously grounded spirituality. But uh, I think uh, increasingly, certainly in the West today, including the United States, many people are engaging those deep spiritual questions outside of a religious frame and engaging that same deep sacred mystery and finding that same life-affirming experience that is on our side, uh, whether we talk about God uh, or the divine mystery or, uh, you know, we all have our own inadequate words to describe that deep reality. So at Fetzer, we're committed to engaging with and supporting everybody on their spiritual journey, whether they are on a journey within one of the, the faith traditions or, or outside it. And you also mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, the divisive impact of religion. And we may want to come back to that because I think all of our religious traditions have a, a, a life-affirming, life-giving core, but they can also be captured by very human instincts and impulses that turn them from part of the solution into part of the problem. Yeah. And how do you think that happens? What's the reasoning behind that? Well, I've got a, a simple model that, that has worked pretty well for me, which is you think about the, the internal dynamics of any of our great faith traditions. They all start with that ineffable, transformative, hot encounter with the sacred mystery, whether that was the Buddha awakening under the, the Boa tree to the deep meaning of life or Muhammad uh, in the cave or, uh, or Christ stepping into the world as Christians believe as, as the incarnation of, of God. But to make sense out of that direct transformative experience of the sacred mystery, we have to put words around it. Even the person that has the experience puts, puts a, a words around it. And, and then to share it with others, you have to do it in large part through words. And you know, those words turn into doctrines and dogma and laws and rituals. And up to a point, that's, that's a very positive thing because it gives us a framework within which to, to try to make sense out of and, and hand on to the next generation that, that life-giving experience of the sacred mystery. But if that process continues, it's at risk of turning into dogmatism and legalism and ritualism and this sense that my faith has an exclusive uh, corner on understanding the sacred mystery. And that's when it begins to divide us rather than bringing us together. So what's the answer? I think the answer is absolutely not 
to walk away from the treasures of, of the religious traditions, but instead to continually renew those traditions by going back to their source, by going back to that direct transformative experience of you know, the divine mystery uh, and the love that is at the core of that mystery. Okay. So knowing that we're all connected on a spiritual level, and yet on the surface, we still feel a need to divide and group ourselves into tribes. What would you suggest would be the best way to look at those issues that are causing the divide and deal with them in a way that, that more relies on common ground and compromise and understanding? Great question. And, and I'd say there are two parts of that challenge. And, and I think committing to love is the key to addressing both. If you think about where we are today, we can't even talk to each other. We don't understand each other across all of these divides. And we're certainly not in relationship, supportive relationship with each other. So I think the first step is just to reach out uh, across all the dimensions of our difference, all of these divides, with a commitment to want to be in relationship and to understand each other, to recognize that we all have walked a different life journey, which has brought us each to where we are. So the first step is just coming back into, into relationship and solidarity. You know, that's, I think of that as recovering the ability to work together. And once we do that, we need to figure out what we want to build together. Uh, and I think, again, a loving commitment to respect each other and to try to create a win-win world where everybody flourishes rather than a win-lose world where my tribe wins, is that gets really practical. Uh, if you think about it, uh, you know, how do you show up on social media? How do you show up at the Thanksgiving dinner table? Do you show up with an open heart and a desire to understand or a desire just to beat the other side over the head? And, you know, why can't we you know, then build a world, an economy, for example, that is an economy that supports everybody's flourishing, a healthcare system that supports everybody's flourishing, a politics that supports every flourishing. You know, uh, I go back to this gets real practical. And it's interesting, but just put this in the, the context of renewing our democracy. If you look at the poll after poll, it shows us that the intense polarizing energy that's pulling us apart is coming from a very small percentage of folks at either end of the spectrum. And uh, our polarized media gives them a very big uh, megaphone. But the great majority of Americans are in the middle wishing that we could find common ground, but with no practical, nobody is giving them a practical response. Our practical response is let's create a, a, a cultural force, a movement based on love uh, and sacred connection. And let's start showing up. If you put it in the electoral context, let's start showing up at primaries and caucuses and voting for the candidates that are committed to bridging and finding common ground. You know, so few people show up at those primaries. It wouldn't take a lot of us committed to that vision of bridging 
to change the, the practical electoral dynamics of American politics. So, you know, this is not uh, airy-fairy, let's commit to love. This is, let's roll up our sleeves and commit to a very practical notion of love as building a world where we can all win. And, and I think that's the only, uh, well, uh, one way I've put it is, uh, we're being fractured by fear uh, in this tribal world. And love is the only uh, impulse of the human heart that's possibly strong enough to overcome that fear. And I uh, also say, how did we ever get to a point where we think we can love America without actually loving Americans, including those we disagree with? Hmm. Yeah, good point. So what are some of the most divisive issues that you think are crucial to address first? There are so many. I, I think at this point, the first one that comes to mind is just whether we even trust our electoral process. And, you know, we've got so many people who are calling into question the good faith of the, the, the folks on the other side, the integrity of folks on the other side. And we've, we've got to restore trust. We obviously have been living through uh, several years of you know, intense controversy and conflict around racial and ethnic divides. We have you know, big divides over how we deal with COVID, uh, how we deal with the economy. So it's, you know, it's not a short list. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess you'd also have to add uh, uh, abortion to that list uh, as a, another issue of intense conflict. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so if people are intrigued by our conversation and they want to explore this more and find out more information about the Fetzer Institute and what you're doing, where can they do that? Fetzer.org. That's F-E-T-Z-E-R.org. And we would love to connect. Uh, we also uh, have a active presence on social media with Facebook and uh, Twitter. So uh, that's, that's where I'd suggest they start. Okay, awesome. So Fetzer.org, F-E-T-Z-E-R, Fetzer.org is the website. They're also on social media, the Fetzer Institute. And, you know, Bob, I think I could talk about this for hours and hours and hours, but, you know, <laughs> in the interest of time, I know it's a weighty subject for a lot of people and we've given them so much to think about. So I want to thank you for your time and introducing these concepts to people who might not have considered them before, maybe opening some eyes who kind of realize that, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. So thank you so much for your time, and I hope that people explore further at Fetzer.org. Well, thank, thank you, Heather, very much, and I hope we can talk again sometime. The sun's shining, birds are singing, and all feels right in the world. Until the season changes, and suddenly everything seems darker, less lively, and you lose your motivation to get out of bed. If you struggle with depression, you're not alone. In fact, one in five people experience some form of depression, and no matter the time of year, it may affect your behavioral or physical ability to live a happy life. At the American Psychiatric Association Foundation, we understand what you're going through, and we're here to help. Our vision is to build a mentally healthy nation for all, 
because we want you to live your best life and be your best you all year round. We work every day to eliminate stigma, combat mental illness and substance use disorders, and advance mental wellness. If you or someone you love needs help, you are not alone. Please visit mentallyhealthynation.org to learn more. I'm Heather Vale, and you're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. Joining me today is Kate Mangino, gender expert and author of Equal Partners, How to Improve Gender Equality at Home. Kate works with international organizations to promote social change. She's written and taught in over 20 countries about issues such as gender equality, women's empowerment, and healthy masculinity. Kate, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. So what prompted you to write your latest book, Equal Partners? I have been doing gender work for years, and I found that I was having wonderful, sophisticated conversations with communities around the world, Zambia, Indonesia, Malawi. And I was finding that I was having rather antiquated conversations about gender in the United States in my own communities with my own friends and family, especially since I became a parent 11 years ago. And so this book was my way to sort of bridge you know, my professional life and my personal life and find entry points for communication around gender in the United States. Okay, so in the 21st century, why is gender inequality still an issue? You know, I I wish I knew the answer to that, but the the (laughs) honest truth is that it is still an issue. I, I mean, I have a couple of theories as to why it's still an issue. I think that a lot of it goes down to our our norms, our gender norms, that those are the unspoken, unwritten assumptions and expectations that we have around men and women. I think we've rewritten a lot of those norms over the last several decades. I think we're making progress, uh, especially in the workplace and in education. But I do think that when it comes to our home and our personal lives and our intimate relationships, there's still a lot of assumptions about women being coded as caregivers, women being better at handling domestic affairs, being better at multitasking, men not being as good in caregiving. And I think those unspoken norms are still lingering, and I think they affect very much the way we behave today. So a lot of women feel pressure to be super mom, you know, and Mm -hmm. myself included. So we want to be moms. We want to work. We want to have careers. We want to do everything. Is that possible? I don't think it is. And I think that the most recent standards around parenting, you know, um, it gets harder and harder every year. I think I'd love to have us stop that conversation about, are you a super mom? Are you a not super mom? I think what it comes down to it is let's talk about what parents need to do to be effective parents. You know, all parents have the capacity to earn money and provide for their children materially. And all parents have the capacity to provide for their children in sort of a nurturing emotional way as well. So I would just love to see that conversation shift to talk about people of all genders and what they can do as parents, as opposed to putting more pressure on mom and what kind of mom she wants to be. Okay. So if all the burden can't be on mom's shoulders, but mom still wants to both be able to work and nurture the family, what's the answer? What do we do to remove the inequality and find a more balanced household? 
So everyone that I interviewed for my book was a dual working couple. So I do think if you choose to have one person stay home part-time or full-time, that dynamic might shift. But for my book, the research was all with couples who are in long-term committed relationships who both work participate the economy and earn money. We can't say work outside of the home anymore because so many of, so many of us work, work at home. <laughs> so participate in the economy is what I think people are saying. So if both of you are working and you're both making money, then what can you both do in the home, you know, to make sure that you're both doing cognitive labor? And you're both doing physical labor. The physical tasks, we know what those are. They're easy to see. And we've talked about these for a long time. And a lot of times we get hung up on chore distribution. You know, we're talking about who's doing the dishes and who's folding the laundry and who's going grocery shopping. But there's also so much cognitive labor that goes into running a household, anticipating needs, making decisions, doing research, evaluating things, managing schedules. Uh, takes a, an enormous amount of time and pressure to balance all of that. And so I think truly quality is when both partners, regardless of their gender identity, so I include same-sex and queer couples in my data set, is that both of them are taking on an, a, an equal amount of physical and cognitive work. So for men who are used to more traditional roles and want to stick to more traditional roles, in other words, they want to be able to work 40 hours or however many hours a week and not have to worry so much about taking care of the housework and the childcare and you know everything else that goes on in the house, how do we convince them that, hey, it's actually a benefit for you as well to contribute to the ecosystem at home. So I think what the way you phrased that question was perfect because we're not just talking about a justice issue. We're not asking people to behave differently because it's just better for women. This is an equity issue. So inequality is bad for everyone and gender equality is better for everyone. The men that I interviewed for my book are already living as equal partners. I decided to find those positive deviants in our society and through interviews with them kind of figure out where they came from and what influenced them and what makes them want to be equal partners. And I actually started the process at the very beginning of my research asking a question, do you mind giving things up? Because I think I made that incorrect assumption that men were going to have to make sacrifices, maybe give up, I don't know, time with their friends or more relaxation time or free time on the weekends. And wh why was it worth giving that up to be an equal partner in their home? And I was very quickly corrected by the men that I interviewed who said, no, 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 we're not giving up anything. We are not sacrificing anything. We are doing this because it is better for us. We have better relationships with our spouse or our partner. We have better relationships with our kids. We feel emotionally connected to people that we didn't have that opportunity with our own father, for example. So we that that relationship with our own dad that was a little distant and uncertain, I have a totally different relationship with my own kids. Um, I heard from men that they felt so relieved that they could be their own self in the home. They didn't have to put on airs or pretend to be a certain way. They didn't have to make a certain amount of money to be accepted. They didn't have to be in charge all the time. They were allowed to be themselves. They were allowed to be scared or uncertain. And that being able to be their own genuine selves in their home and having those really close relationships made all of it worth it. Hmm. Okay. So having a mindset around equality is amazing. 
But when we're looking at quote unquote traditional roles for men and women, obviously biology is a factor. Only women can carry a child and breastfeed, for example. But beyond that, are there any reasons to stick to traditional roles? Are there any positives to maintaining traditional roles in the household? Is there any scientific data to support that that works? I have not seen any scientific data to support the fact that that's a better way of life. I do say very openly and honestly that if, you know, if you have a listener in a traditional relationship and you're both genuinely happy with that distribution of labor, I would never ask anyone to change. You know, I think being in a partnership is hard. Raising a family is hard. Whatever way you do it that works for you is fantastic. Um, I think I wrote my book because the majority of couples in North America right now are dual earning. And there still persists, even though both people have a job outside the home and are earning income, there persists this norm. And we've seen the statistic that's pretty much been plateaued since the mid 80s, that in different sex households, uh, women do two thirds of the work and men do one third of the work. And over time, this has negative you know, repercussions for both partners. So I think if you're both making the decision to be out in the workforce, you should also both have, you know, equal chance to take care of caregiving and household chores, and you should both have equal access to leisure time and relaxation time. Okay, so what's step one? How do we make our homes more fair and equal? All right, so you said step one, so I'm gonna I'm gonna take this way back to one if you're okay, because I think sure people <laughs> have steps here. But number one is a lot of gender norms; they're learned. They become part of who we are. They can become part of our behaviors. It's easier to change them from the onset than when you're already in them. So working with kids, I think, is going to be step number one. We've changed the way we've worked with girls over the last 10, 15 years. We talk about women's empowerment. We've shattered glass ceilings for girls. Let's talk about caregiving with boys. Let's um, make sure our sons and nephews and grandsons and neighbors have access to babysitting, can care for younger siblings, can participate in senior care. So that would be step one. Step two, I think, is talking to new couples, You know, being really honest with people who are just moving in together, maybe getting engaged, that this is a major issue among married couples who are in their you know 30s, 40s, and 50s. And if they value gender equality, they're going to have to take it head on that if you don't talk about it and you just co- kind of go into default mode, we've seen that couples sort of fall back into these very gendered patterns. You have to be intentional and you have to have many conversations about it. Uh, my book offers lots of discussion questions you can have with your partner to start that conversation so that you can think of ways to manage your own household and find equality. How do we make workplaces more fair and equal as well? That's a great question, too. So I think that, you know, if you're talking about two people at home and what they're contributing to their household and they're both working, the flip side is that the the work that those people do is highly going to impact what they do at home. So workplaces need to have policies and um, cultures that support all people backing away from work once in a while to take care of caregiving, whether that's an afternoon off to take a child to the dentist or a month off because you have to transition a parent into uh, assisted living. We need to, you know, have I've, I've seen people sometimes become a little hypocritical where a boss will say, 
a female boss, I want my husband to be an equal partner at home, but I expect my employees to, you know, be on email at nine o'clock at night on a Wednesday. So I think we need to have really consistent messaging. And if we're going to support equal partnership, then we need to help people set boundaries at work as well as set boundaries at home. This is a big topic and, you know, there's a lot involved and I want to make it easy for people. So what are the top takeaways that people could implement right away into their lives? I think another thing that I like to talk about is that is to acknowledge that this is a problem that is far bigger than any one family or any one individual. This topic tends to rest in the nuclear household, but this is an intergenerational social problem. It was something that was handed to us. We didn't invent inequality. And I think that it's going to take everyone to get us closer to equality. So a lot of people think, oh, I'm not married. I'm not partnered. This isn't my issue. Or I've had, you know, I've been married for 45 years and we have our patterns and my kids are grown. So this isn't my issue. I would love everyone to embrace this issue and say, there's something I can do. It might be about the way we, we talk to the kids in our life. It might be about the way we talk to our um, sons and daughters or our workplaces or the policies that we're suggesting in our workplaces. Do you have paid caregiving policies at your work uh, if you're in a leadership or a supervisory role. So I think one of my core messages is I would just love anyone who values gender equality to understand that there's something they can do. Okay. So how do people find out more about your book or gender equality in general? My book is available from all of the usual bookseller outlets, your favorite online or brick and mortar bookstore. I try to keep updated with events on my website, katemangino.com. And if you have any questions at all or want to reach out, I share my email address on my website. And I'm also active on Twitter at Mangino Kate. Okay, awesome. So once again, that's katemangino.com, K-A-T-E. Mangino is M-A-N-G-I-N-O.com, katemangino.com. If you want to find out more about Kate, find out more about her book. The book is called Equal Partners, How to Improve Gender Equality at Home, and you can get it at any of your favorite book vendors. Equal Partners by Kate Mangino. And once again, the website, katemangino.com. Kate, I want to thank you so much for being here today, talking to us about this issue, letting people know what the mindset is out there and how they can make positive change in their own lives and their own households. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Heather. Hi, I'm Barbara and I work for social services. On our lobby wall, there's a picture of this kid I used to work with. She's all of 17 years old and she's on one of those missing posters. Unfortunately, that happens to a lot of our kids who don't have somebody to step up for them. They stay in foster care for years, they aren't adopted, and they age out. They either wind up in jail or they live on the streets. The Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption works every day to find safe, permanent homes for children at risk of aging out of foster care before it's too late. I adopted two teenagers from foster care. Their outlook on life changed. If I can do a little bit to help, it's worth it. You can help too. Learn more at DaveThomasFoundation.org. I'm Tumani. When I was younger, I may have did some stupid things. I committed some crimes, I even got shot, but I'm not a criminal. 
That's right, I'm Jamal. I work for Youth Advocate Programs, Yeah, I was Tumani's advocate, helping him stay out of jail, stay in the neighborhood, get a job, and work hard to see a better future for himself. If you have a change of mindset, you can have a change of action. As a little kid, I experienced trauma and I acted out. Made some mistakes, but I'm not a mistake. No, she's a good student and a great kid. As Jalen's YAP advocate, I'm always here for her. With the Youth Advocate Programs, I was able to connect with Jalen. YAP is a community-based alternative to youth incarceration, congregate placement, and neighborhood violence. After completing our program, 86% of participants were arrest-free. YAP works. And now, I'm a YAP advocate, helping kids like me find a better way. Youth Advocate Programs. Others talk social change. We make it happen. Learn how at yapinc.org. I'm Heather Vale with the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show, and this is your community events calendar for nonprofit initiatives and charity events around the valley. Opportunity Village is holding their annual Magical Forest events through December 31st at the Magical Forest on the Opportunity Village campus, 6300 West Oakey. Get your tickets and find out all the event times and dates at opportunityvillage.org. That's opportunityvillage.org. And Make-A-Wish Southern Nevada is holding their second annual Trailblaze Challenge presented by Subaru of Las Vegas from February 3rd to 5th with a 12-week training that's happening right now. This is a 26.2-mile hike through the Valley of Fire backcountry in Mesquite with the goal of raising $300,000 to grant wishes for children with critical illnesses in Southern Nevada. Sign up or find out more information at wish.org snv trailblaze. That's wish.org slash SNV slash trailblaze. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 